This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Good evening and welcome to Drive Alive here on Fresh FM. We are broadcasting from a sunny Founders Park here in Nelson on a lovely spring evening. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, thank you also to NPD Fuels for sponsoring us tonight and every fortnight. You can fill up at their many fuel stations dotted around the South Island, North Island, wherever you're going. Uh, thank you to them for supplying the fuel that keeps us all going. Well, tonight uh, we, as usual, are talking to a guest about all things motoring, transport, uh, what people drive, classic cars. Who knows? Because actually we've, at huge expense, or, or maybe not a lot at all, have uh, managed to get a guest over from the UK. They are joining us by Zoom, and if I've pressed all the buttons correctly, they're going to be on the other end here. So, uh, good evening, or rather good morning, hopefully, to Richard, and welcome to the Drive Alive show. Uh, morning, very much morning, Stephen. I was tempted to just stay quiet there for a minute and try and um, freak you out, but yeah, that would be cruel. You so would have def- you would have definitely succeeded if you'd have stayed quiet. That was <laughs> that was that was cunning, but I'm very glad you didn't. So uh, thank you to you for getting up at um, such a awful hour over there in the UK, uh, especially when you're coming into winter, because I was asking what the weather's doing out there and Richard said there is no weather because it's pitch dark at the moment where we're basking in the lovely evening sunshine so so uh, yes thank you so much for getting up now Richard you are well you're a motoring journalist you're an editor you're many other things as well I presume well I class myself as a motoring writer rather than a motoring journalist I think a motoring journalist is somebody who's probably all um, kind of news based um, or is a writer I like documenting history um, I do I do, do new car stuff as well, though. So I do new cars, used cars, classic cars. Um, I, have a, I have a finger in many pies. Finger in many pies. And how how long have you been doing that um, motoring writing for? Um, 20, 24 years. 20, uh, 24 years, yeah. Wow, okay. That's... 25 next year, so there should be some kind of celebration, I guess. Yeah, the, you should get a... a what, what do you get for a 25-year wedding anniversary? I can't remember, something... You get a, I don't know equivalent of a carburetta or a steering wheel or something presented to yeah you. something like that box um, of chocolates too many. Like so what got you into it why did you get into motoring writing then um well i, I don't really know i suppose it's the obvious answer um i when i was 11 so i'm 50 now i was born in 1971 and um i started secondary school i have no idea how the education system works in new zealand but 
in the UK, we have primary schools up to 11, secondary schools from 11 up to 18. So I started at secondary school um, when I was 11, so that was 1982. And um, my new best friend at secondary school, he had a an uncle who worked in the car trade. Right. And his uncle gave him car magazines. And my parents didn't buy car magazines, didn't buy any magazines. And he started, uh, he started showing me these magazines. And I remember uh, it was the August, I guess, or September 1982 issue of Car. And Car was an iconic magazine back then. Oh, yes, I, I remember it that. Had, yeah, and it had the Lamborghini LM002, the original four-wheel drive Lamborghini. And I'd heard of Lamborghini, but to me, they were sports cars. And, um, you know, the idea of this Lamborghini off-roader was a bit crazy. And I just found car really absorbing. Well, that was September 1982. Uh, October 1982, my dad took me to the NEC for the big uh, annual motor show that took place. And right. back then, it was really glitzy and glamorous. It's a huge event. And there was a lot going on, a lot of international debuts. It was an important show. Um, and... Uh, I thought, wow, this is quite exciting. So from there on, I started reading magazines and um, enjoying the stories in them. And, but I, and I had no desire to, to, to write about uh, cars, particularly at that point. But as I got older and started reading the stories, uh, and I started reading, there's a guy called Phil Luethlin, who sadly oh, died yeah. about yeah. probably about 10 years ago now. And... Um, uh, his stuff was amazing because he used to weave history into his new car travels. Mm. And I realized that it wasn't just about reviewing cars. There was all sorts of stuff that you could do when writing about cars. You could make it far more interesting, mm. far more diverse. Um, and I started thinking, actually, I quite, quite fancy writing and maybe capturing history. Um, but I didn't then. I, I, I left school, went into retail, uh, left retail, went to university, university, got a degree. And then when I was in my late 20s, I started working for Wapcar and Autocar, fresh out of university. And uh, oh, right, they took off from there. They're, they're pretty big magazines in the UK, those two. So, well, straight into them. I did some placements while at university. And uh, the first placement I did was with Practical Classics, uh, which is with one big publishing house over here. And then the following year, I spent a month with Autocar, which is with a rival publishing house and um they both offered me jobs um and i took uh i actually took the modern one i won't i won't bore you with why it's not quite that similar they, they both offered me jobs but i wasn't in a position to take the practical classics one so i took the uh what car one and i worked alongside auto car as well and um uh, and then i didn't stay there for very long when they when um uh, when i started working so i did less than a year uh, a job at Top Gear came up, and I went to work for Top Gear wow. for about five years. Um, but while I was at Top Gear, um, it, it's a bit bizarre, really, because I couldn't imagine it now. But when I was at Top Gear, obviously covering new cars and exclusively new cars, um, I started doing a lot of freelance work for various classic car magazines, Classic Car Weekly, Practical Classics, funnily enough. Uh, classic cars all in the same publishing group right. and i was allowed to do that because classic cars weren't weren't seen as a rival to the modern cars that we covered at top gear so so i was doing a lot of freelancing for classics and and, and staffing for the moderns um and then i went freelance uh 17 years ago uh 
end of 2004. Uh-huh. And I've, I've done a variety since. I've done, I run a road safety magazine for quite a few years alongside writing about classic cars. Oh, I'll have to ask you about that. Um, and doing new cars, used cars. Um, the thing about the UK is we have so many magazines, uh, mainstream and niche, and um, they they just cover a multitude of roles, really. And um, and I, I got involved in as many as possible to keep my work life as varied as possible. Right. So this is, this is going to be a bit of a dumb question, really, but how, especially to people who aren't into cars, you write, how, how do you keep writing about cars and keeping it fresh and interesting and sort of because you know the gear change does this and the handling does that and then you move on to the next one how how on how do you manage to keep it engaging okay well okay there's there's well there's two answers to that or the answer has two strands the first one is when you're writing about classic cars it's not to me it's not about reviewing the car so much as telling the story behind it right that's the classic car side the new car side is is very different it's very easy, you know, we're both car nuts, um, but most people aren't. Most people who drive a car are not a car nut. They don't understand technical terms mm-hmm. and they don't understand why one car feels different to drive from another. And increasingly cars feel very similar to drive anyway. Mm. Certainly, yeah, yeah. you know, certainly when you're talking about kind of, you know, shopping trolleys rather than yeah. sports cars. Okay, so, so I was getting worried that's um, a sign of my age, but it's not. It's it's you're agreeing with it. it. It it is a sort of trend in the motor industry. They just feel same. Yeah, I think I think I think cars are designed to be easy to live with, and uh, you know the bottom line is that the average reader who goes to a brand like What Car or Car Buyer, they want non-technical reviews, and they're not interested in the gear change. Um, they're not interested in the dynamics so much. They're interested mm-hmm. in the build quality and the packaging and the reliability yeah. and value. And, and you know, you tend to talk quite objectively, which is why I don't do a lot of that stuff, um, because it is quite formulaic. It's not particularly um, satisfying to write and it's not particularly satisfying to read. But that's not to say it's not worth doing. Um, as a car enthusiast, it's really easy to think that everybody out there is also a car enthusiast everyone who drives gets yep. excited yeah, yeah. by or cares about their car but the bottom line is you know if you're buying a dishwasher or you're buying you know uh, an mp3 player uh, if people bother with those anymore or a mobile <laughs> phone or a camera you go online you read the reviews and you don't expect to read a review that's full of jargon and is written by an enthusiast for an enthusiast market. It's an appliance and you're buying something that does a job. Dishwasher's magazine. (laughs) Sorry? Dishwasher's magazine. Absolutely. Dishwasher's fortnightly fortnightly is an excellent publication. I can recommend it, (laughs) even though I don't write for it. Um, But this thing, I mean, I'm making, I'm taking all the glamour and the romance out of it. I'm making it sound like it's, you know, my 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 job and my world is very formulaic. It isn't because you know I don't do so much of the new stuff. I do do a lot more of the classic. Right. Um, you know, most of my uh, writing is classic. In the past, I've done more modern, um, but I've moved away from that now. But I think I think the key point there is that your main audience is is not an enthusiast audience, and they want non technical stuff in the main. Even even auto car. I mean, I've. I've got auto car, you know, the auto car is the world's um, oldest classic car magazine. Um, now, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know who your audience are. I don't know if they are 
motoring enthusiasts in the main or or, or just you know, kind of listening to pass the time. So I don't know how much I need to explain, um, but certainly, you know, it's probably worth saying that Auto Car is the world's oldest classic car magazine, 125 years old this year. Wow. Um, and in the old days, if you wanted to be a reviewer, if you wanted to write road tests for Auto Car, you had to have an engineering degree. Oh, right. um, and you had to know what happened under the bonnet. You had to understand synchromesh and valve trains and all these kinds of things. Nowadays, it's a really non-technical journal um, uh, because the people who read it don't understand those terms themselves. People understand the technology less and less. So um, it's really interesting seeing how my industry has evolved in uh, in recent years. Yeah, I guess there's an ana- analogy there with increasingly cars just put a big cover over the engine under the bonnet and you don't see what's going on so much or, or uh, get to play. Well, that's the thing. I mean, in the old days, magazines had a, quite an emphasis on, on DIY maintenance. And nowadays, of course, manufacturers discourage that and yeah. most people that wouldn't have the confidence yeah. um, to do it. Yeah, no, as I found out when I decided to tackle the hydraulics on my Mercedes SLK roof I took one look at it and said no I'm going around to my mates who knows what he's doing so but I mean it's interesting how things have evolved because you know I've got some classic cars and um, uh, a lot of stuff on modern cars is still eminently doable obviously it depends what car we're talking about and what the job is but you know sometimes you have to buy things after you programmed into the car but the SLK is an example of something where uh, I've got an SL right. um, probably with a similar vintage to your SLK and um, you know you get hydraulic roof leaks on those I've got an R129 um, so an SL320 oh, yeah. from 1998 and nice. uh, my mum has an SLK which is only a, a couple of years newer and you're not, you're not saying now, it's a girly car are you I'm very much saying it's a girly car. Oh. No, of course I'm not. The thing, the thing about cars <laughs> like that is that I, I don't go down that route of, of of stereotyping. If you like a car, great. That's all that matters. Um, and you know, there's the classic MX-5s, the hairdressers' cars. Well, actually, they're great to drive and they're great for everyone. They certainly um, are. Um, but anyway, going back to your point about the SLK, the thing is that the days of the workshop manual, I think, have gone now. You can still buy them, and you know, if you have a one of my cards is a 1969 Triumph Vitesse. Um, so it's all old school tech, no ECUs, no electronics. And you can buy a Haynes manual or the original factory mm-hmm. workshop manual. You can work on that yourself. And people will use those manuals to work on their cars. But I think nowadays the world has moved on and it's all YouTube tutorials and it's all digital. And if you go onto YouTube, you'll see that somebody would have done the job on your car. Somebody somewhere in the world will have overhauled the hydraulic roof on an SLK. You can watch that, and then you can go in with a bit more confidence. Yeah, the chances are you can fix it yourself. Absolutely, and that's that's actually what we ended up doing. And there was another thing where I had to take the dashboard apart, and I wouldn't have dared attempt that myself. But as you say, somebody had filmed themselves doing it, even showing get your screwdriver under here first and do it these screws in that order because if you do it in this order, it's good. and it's just it's fantastic it gives you the, as you say the confidence to go and have a play and take things off and it all worked and i managed to put it all back together and i had the same number of bolts and it was great thank and, you and how you. satisfying is that? how satisfying you know, indeed it, when yeah. i was 16 i bought my first car it was a 1962 triumph herald <coughs> excuse me and the triumph herald is a meccano set it's a really simple car separate chassis 
Um, and it's it's very, very simple, as you'd expect of a 1960s car, especially a British one, because they were <laughs> very uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. And I, I took this Herald apart and I put it back together and um, it was all really straightforward. Again, no electronics, and uh, it was it was just an incredibly simple car. And over the years, I, I would buy newer cars and I'd maintain them myself. And even now, all these years on, the principles of braking systems, an example, are the same. They're obviously more complicated with with more electronics, but you know you can replace a set of brake pads on a modern car much like you can on a, on, a, on a much older car. And for for many years, I was heavily involved in a in a magazine called First Car, and First Car, which is still going um, and is aimed at new drivers. All right. First Car is and, and there's a website at firstcar.co.uk and it you know, tells you all about the brand um, and, and there's lots of information and it, it's about learning to drive and and how to buy a safe car and, and how to maintain your car and um, you know how to be a better driver, all those kinds of things. And uh, as somebody who is self-taught with mechanics, and I wouldn't have the confidence to work on a modern car, but with a, with a classic car, you know, they're pretty straightforward. And years ago, I, I, I did an article in First Car about um, how if you had no money, um, and even if you did have money, you could save yourself lots and lots of money by working on your own car instead of giving it to a garage who may or may not rip you off, who may or may not do a good job. Yeah. And I had this guy who ran a, a mechanics course uh like evening classes and he wrote in absolutely furious that uh, i was advocating that youngsters should you know replace the brake pads on their car or the cam belt or whatever and he said you know these are very very complicated machines and you shouldn't be suggesting that anybody touch their car themselves and do you know even the basic things like maybe an oil change and i said well you know actually this is the problem people are told that they can't do even basic tasks there's loads of stuff that you can do. Hmm. And and with, with YouTube tutorials now, you can do even more. But, I mean, there are people who get it wrong, and you do have to be careful. But, you know, cars are much, well, I was going to say they're much less complicated than people think. No, they're probably not much less complicated, but there's more that you can do on them than you think. Than you think. Yeah, and and as labour sort of gets ever more expensive, that's, that's probably a... a good thing to try. And as you say, hugely satisfying when it goes right. That's... that's well, DIY is satisfying. You know, instead of forking out for somebody to do the job for you, if you have the time um, and just a bit of confidence, it's so easy to, I mean, you know, putting a shelf up, doing the decorating, when you see the fruits of your labour, it's satisfying. It's no different working on a car, you know, taking a broken car and making it work. So let's let's talk about maybe the flip side of the internet for the motoring writer, because what I wanted to ask about is one of the challenges you're, obviously writing and describing and trying to bring the reader into your world, telling the story, the history. And now there's YouTube in terms of watching the cars and driving and documentaries and stuff. How how much harder does that make your job, especially in the magazine world, to sort of compare to, well, I'll just go and watch this um, Triumph Vitesse cruising around the country roads on a YouTube video and someone <coughs> describing it? Um. I think that the two things complement each other. I, I I would say that a lot of the stuff on YouTube is very different from a video version of what we're doing in print. So um, uh, a lot of stuff on YouTube is very good. There's a lot of stuff that isn't very good. Mm -hmm. and, and and a lot of the stuff on YouTube is, is done by amateurs. 
Although at what point you become an amateur, you you become a professional and lose your amateur status, I'm not sure. But magazines tend to be put together by professionals where, you know, the stuff is very structured, it's done to a high standard, good photography, good research, good writing. A lot of stuff on YouTube is done as a hobby. And and some of these friends, some of these um, people on YouTube are friends of mine, YouTubers. And what they're doing is something very different. It tends to be very much about the car rather than the story behind it with okay, YouTube. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have a YouTube channel on classic retro modern. Um, I've got a project called Below the Radar, uh, tells the stories of obscure cars. Maybe we'll come on to that in a minute. Mm. I've got a YouTube channel associated with that. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right that uh, YouTube is, I don't like to use the word a threat, but it's an alternative to print. And it's one that's becoming increasingly appealing to people. Uh, but they don't have to be in competition. Um, you know, they can complement each other. So as an example, um, so Classic Retro Modern is a print magazine and you can buy a digital version of it. Right. Our website is largely there to promote the magazine, to encourage people to subscribe. And there's a bit of editorial content, but there's not a lot. Uh, so... Um, I suppose YouTube is an alternative. It is a threat to that in that um, some of the stories we have in classic retro modern, uh, they, those stories potentially will be told uh, within within someone's YouTube channel. Um, but you know, some may, maybe some um, and, and some of them won't be. Um, that that's a print magazine. So of course, your listeners probably don't even know what classic retro modern is or below the radar. So maybe we need to explain. Absolutely. That so yes, but, that- but I have my own. I have my own personal project, which I launched last year called Below the Radar, which tells the stories of obscure cars. Now, that was never meant to be a commercial venture. It was meant to be a bit of fun for me to explore my library, you know, to to delve into my old auto cars from the 50s, 60s, 70s um, and, and, and some of my books and to tell the stories of obscure cars. Um, I have a YouTube channel because making money out of a website is extremely difficult if you don't have a big brand behind it because basically your income stream from a website is advertising and if you don't have a brand and a big audience then advertisers aren't interested so um, knowing that the website would probably never bring me in any money at all i have got a youtube channel um, because youtube as long as you can build some kind of a an audience you can you can monetize it quite easily um uh, i make it sound simple of course it isn't it's a lot of work you have to create a lot of videos keep promoting those videos mm-hmm. and getting a lot of people looking at them a lot of the time but the bottom line is that in the old days so i used to run a top gear website that was my job when i worked at top gear for nearly five years i was online editor well that's a pretty big that's one. That's a big brand that's a big brand Sorry? that's a big brand it's a big brand and we used to have waiting lists from advertisers wanting to advertise with us. We used to sell out of advertising constantly. You know, we, we never had to have any last minute sales to try and encourage people in because we didn't have enough capacity because so many people wanted to advertise. So, you know, that was great. Um, well, if you are uh, me in my, uh, you know, in my office at home launching a website called Below the Radar that no one's heard of, uh, you're not going to get advertising. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to put a, you know, a lot of effort into building an audience. And even when you've got an audience, you probably don't have enough traffic going to the site 
to sell advertising. Right. So in the old days, you'd have to go out to, uh, well, you could go to agencies, but you, you know, you'd probably go and try and sell advertising to companies. YouTube makes it easy. You, you know, you put up some videos, you get enough views, enough a big enough audience, enough views, and YouTube gives you some money. They do all the selling for you. So, um, you know, the thing is that if you run a brand, whether it's Top Gear or Below the Radar, you can set up a YouTube channel and you can watch the money coming in. So, you know, YouTube doesn't have to be competition for any brand. It can complement any brand. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about, um, before we get on to Classic Retromon, tell us a little bit more about Below the Radar and your love of things obscure. Are you, are you fighting for the underdog here? Or um, is, no, it, is it just I'm a not. personal... I'm not, I'm not fighting for the underdog. I'm, I'm trying to do something different. The, the, the problem with writing, with the media, with motoring, is that it's very easy to do the same as everyone else is doing. It, it, it's very easy to tell the same, same stories, to try and attract the same audience. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm now 50, and a lot of my friends are a bit older than me. And uh, uh, people my age and younger and older, um, they've read about the mainstream stuff multiple times mm-hmm. and they want something new. And, and I personally am interested in the stuff that other people don't know about, that, that I don't know about. Um, I, I want to, um, especially if I'm doing something for the fun of it, I want to learn uh, stories, you know, learn about cars that I never knew existed. So I, I've got... Um, I've been collecting literature for nearly 40 years, press kits, brochures, books, magazines, and, and I've got you know, all sorts of stuff going, going back. Um, and I love delving into my old magazines, whether that's auto car from the 50s or motor from the 60s, 70s, or car from the 60s or 70s. Right. And there's a lot of stories in there um, about cars that are now you know, long forgotten. And so having written about probably all the mainstream stuff over the years, multiple times, I decided that I would launch my own project that tells the stories of cars that people have never heard of. So being based in the UK, the UK has a very rich history of small-scale car production um, and failed cars. So uh, microcars, especially back in the 50s and 60s, sports Mm -hmm. cars, um, and... Uh, if you look at below, so belowtheradar.com, is, there's a couple of hyphens in there, but if you just Google below the radar obscure cars, you'll find a website that tells the stories of about 240 so far um, cars that uh, you may or may not know existed. So um, if you, it, it's split into three sections. Um, there's there's production, but the production cars are all very low volume so i'll throw a few names in there and and see i don't know how much you know about uh, cars but um you'll probably know about the gordon keeble maybe the swallow duretti yes so the, the, the gordon keeble so we have a classic car museum here in nelson that used okay, to yeah. be a uh a Leyland factory back in the 70s and then honda took it over the 80s but it's now a classic car museum there is a gordon keeble in there and that they're, they're okay. pretty nice looking cars well, it had a, had a Corvette engine. It was Giorgetto Giugiaro's first ever design um, back in 1960. They made 99 of them, plastic body, Corvette V8 engine. 
um, and, uh, you know, very, very sought after now. They all survive, interestingly. If the 99 cars made, all of them survived. Wow. Um, uh, anyway, so there's the Gordon Keeble, the Swallow Duretti. Those are as mainstream as it gets. So they're cars that people may have heard of, but they don't really know the stories behind them. And so that's as mainstream as below the radar gets. But then I've got um, a lot of obscure uh, microcars. So I've got uh, cars like the Gogomobile Dart. I've got the Glassbar G2. The Glassbar G2 was the first ever glass fiber or plastic um, production car that was American. Right. Um, I've got some. I've got the Coronet, for example, which which is a um, a, a microcar. Um, I've got I've got quite a few microcars because I find those fascinating. They're so ridiculous frankly um but you know i've got things like uh the uh, the nissan r390 which was which was their um supercar that kind of never was it was an endurance racer and they built one road car the panther solo um is oh is there. that the six wheeler yeah. was that the six, six no solo? What no, was no, the six no that's the panther six. Oh yeah of course right okay yeah i'm just showing so the panther the six they made two examples the panther solo was the uh it's a really interesting story because panther solo was was meant to be an affordable sports car um for the masses and they developed it and they were doing really well with it and then toyota launched the original mr2 and that was exactly where panther needed to be it was that that uh, kind of you know i think they're about 14 grand mid-engined uh rear wheel drive affordable sports car and panther realized they were never going to compete with toyota toyota would just you know blow them out the weeds so um they had to take the car up market and do something a bit special so they ended up putting in a four-wheel drive system turbocharged cosworth engine taking up to forty thousand pounds and that was a kiss of death of the project because they were up against much more expensive mainstream cars yeah. and um they made 12 and they lost a fortune on each one and it and it, and it pushed the company to bankruptcy so, so um you there's, have- there's a lot of Sorry, Richard, you will have admitted, uh, un, un, sorry, unintentionally done an amazing segue then and small world segue because two weeks ago I had um, Tony Bowater, who's a local car dealer here in Nelson, whose family have been dealing in cars for 60 years, I think. And guess what make they used to sell in Nelson? They, they used Surely to, not Panther. They did. In little old Nelson, New Zealand, Panther, they sold brand new. There's a picture of them selling a Panthers in the 80s. And then... He went on to sell Toyotas, and they are now one of the biggest and most successful Toyota dealers in the whole of New Zealand. So Toyota did eat. Well, that, that would have been the Panther Callista. Yeah. So back then, back then, the Callista was their mainstream car, which was looked well, very rough, like a Morgan, so kind yeah. of a pre-war look. Um, but yeah, the Solo was meant to take them into a different territory, and it, it uh, bankrupted them instead. So anyway, so there's production, and then I also cover. Uh, professionally modified cars, but not we're not talking custom cars. I'm talking cars that maybe had their roofs chopped off to become convertibles, or they've been stretched into limousines, or you know. So um, there are there are cars in there that are um, uh, quite quite interesting. So, for example, Ford uh, did a series of uh, transit-based uh, vehicles back in the 70s, 80s, called the Supervan, which you remember, I'm sure. Um, so the, the original Transit, they put a Ford GT40 engine in, mid-engined, um, and used it as a, a, um, a promotional tool. 
Um, and so I tell the story of the Supervan 1, they did a Supervan 2 and a Supervan 3. Um, and so uh, there's that. And then there's there's other tuning and modifying companies. I tell the stories of some of those. Oh, yeah. um, and then the third strand in the website is concepts and prototypes. And they're the cars that you know may have made production in a slightly different form or they never made production at all because they were just show cars. So, you know, concepts and prototypes is the one strand, modified is the other, and production is the other. So there's about 240 stories that I've told so far. There's hundreds more on my to-do list. And <laughs> I also do a quiz. So I do a 10-minute, uh, sorry, three-minute quiz, 10 questions in three minutes. And they're quite difficult questions. And if you can get more than half marks, you're doing pretty well. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a lot on there. But the reason that Below the Radar has been parked pretty much is uh, is because of Classic Retro Modern, yeah. which has come along and, um, you know, uh, kind of taken over my life, really. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that because this is a brand new um, magazine. And it's because it, you said at the start, you know, it's, it's quite a busy um, magazine specialist market already there are a lot of publications there's all the sort of thing about print is declining da 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 you're launching in lockdown how did that go why why did you do it how's it how's it come to fruition because we're lunatics because we all need <laughs> cancelling um <laughs> no so the the team behind it we, we're all experienced we've all written for um you know uh, a lot of magazines over the years and we continue to i mean you know classic retro modern is, is is one thing that we do we're all still working for other people as well um because we like the variety you know i'm still i actually edit um a ferrari magazine specifically a ferrari magazine uh, a bi-monthly ferrari mag so that's six issues a year um and and i do new and classic ferraris in that um and i do uh, i still do uh right right for haggerty um writing an obscure cars column on the back of below the radar um i i also write for auto express which is one of the mainstream weekly uh print titles over here well um, okay and you know that, that that's just me and and you know we're all doing stuff for the because we like to we're passionate about cars we like to write about modern cars and classic cars and used cars and so we we keep ourselves busy by doing several several things but classic retro modern is is fundamentally what we do um and what we're seeing is um we're all we're all freelancers that's the bottom line um none of us staff on a magazine we're freelancers and the freelance opportunities are drying up as as magazine publishers there are a few big publishing houses in the uk and it's easy for people outside the industry to completely not understand how the publishing world works but fundamentally there are i don't know four or five big publishing uh, companies that control the the car the, um, the car magazine market or the magazine market in the uk um and and you know i i, I have worked for pretty much all of them um and uh, so i started writing in the late 90s and in those days, people would phone me up and say, we want you to do some work, please. Nowadays, that just doesn't happen because right. there are so many people chasing a small amount of work and the publishing houses have so little work available because through cost cutting, they're trying to do everything in house that we, we've decided, okay, well, the opportunities are diminishing. Not only the opportunities are diminishing generally, but the opportunities to do what we want to do to write about 
the cars that we want to cover, they're diminishing because if you if you look at classic, so classic retro modern is very different from well any other magazine out there in in quite a few ways. The design is very different. It's very design heavy, mm-hmm. and the cars that we cover are generally different. We have to do some mainstream stuff because despite everything that I've said about people wanting something different, they also like the familiar. They like to read about the cars that they can relate to. So there's some of that, but there's also telling stories that other people won't won't tell. The more mainstream titles out there are are too afraid to take those kinds of risks generally, not exclusively, but a lot of them will cover exclusively mainstream cars. And they will just keep retelling the same stories over and over because they want to attract the advertising. Uh, they feel that's what the readers want. It's in their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And we've decided that if we do that, then we're not different. And if we're not different, people won't buy us. So we're doing something that's different. And so far, people seem to love it. Um, you know, uh, I, I couldn't imagine you, because we haven't actually told your listeners yet that you, yeah. know, you write for Classic Retro and you have a column in it. And you know, clearly you're fired up by contributing to something a bit different. Um, I would imagine you haven't been fired up about writing for one of the other magazines that maybe doesn't stand out so much. Um, And that's the thing. People have noticed us and they want to be a part of what we do, which suggests that we're doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, it's the, it's the sort of it's a it's kind of magazine that doesn't take itself too seriously, but the standards, like you said, the the design, the photography, it's re- and the the stories behind the stories is really high high sort of quality yes. and, and interest read. I think I think having a bit of humour in there is important, but it's also re- really important that we're authoritative, that we're credible. So yeah. everything's fully researched um, and fact checked, and you know we try to make sure we don't make factual mistakes in our writing um we try to make sure that the photography is really good that we're we're not just doing the same as everybody else and we've been very lucky we found um, a really good designer called uh, roy mccarthy and roy um so one of the guys involved in the project is uh, is the deputy editor gavin braithwaite smith and gavin runs his own uh website called petrol blog mm-hmm. petrol blog's been going for quite a few years and gavin does love the underdog he loves the cars that nobody else, you know, is, is bothered about. Well, seemingly nobody else is bothered about. <laughs> but maybe. But having set up Petrol Blog, he it's clear that there's a real interest, a real passion out there amongst a lot of people for cars that, you know, pretty much forgotten. So as an example, Gavin's got a couple of Renault Safran's and the Safran wasn't a big seller in the UK, particularly. They pretty much disappeared. He's got a couple and he promotes them on his, on his um petrol blog website and his youtube channel and um there's people all over the world who follow him because he covers these cars that were once kind of around and they've all just disappeared and there's an element of that with classic retro modern um some of our most um liked articles are about cars that were once everywhere and now have disappeared so um through petrol blog uh, gavin had a follower called roy mccarthy and roy mccarthy had put a book together called A is for Allegro. And it, it was telling stories about ordinary cars uh, that were everywhere and, and and now you pretty much never see. And Roy's a designer and he's a fantastic designer and a great illustrator. And uh, via Gavin's petrol blog, uh, Roy got involved with Classic Retro Modern and said, um, 
you know, we, we basically said to him, would you be interested in designing the magazine? And we gave him some tests. And, and, you know, we tried a few other established designers, people we know in the industry, mm-hmm. people who have a good track record of doing great design. And they came up with you know, some designs, but they didn't wow us. They weren't different enough. And Roy came up with this fantastic look and feel that was completely different from anything else out there. And we thought, yeah, that's it. We, we, we didn't really quite know what we wanted, but we knew that we didn't want something that was derivative, that didn't stand out. So, so Roy comes up with amazing designs. And um, and Gavin does our social media, and he's a fantastic writer, um, and he loves writing about the very ordinary cars. Um, and then we have a guy called Richard Hesseltine, who very experienced writer. He's written for a lot of the big magazines and continues to. Um, and you know he's driven everything, interviewed lots of key people. Uh, he also loves the left field, um, uh, but he's he's driven you know all the mainstream stuff. So he's a fantastic contributor. Um, and then the guy behind it all really uh, is is Ian Robertson, who's um, we have a magazine called Diesel Car, uh, and uh, it's been going a long time, and um, Ian has owned that for for quite a long time. So he looks after all the you know the kind of the mechanics of making the magazine work, like the printing and the subscriptions and the distribution and all that right. kind of stuff. And then I, I'm the editor, so I, I just try and make sure that everyone knows what's going on. I do some writing, some photography, and um, you know, just try and make sure that um, we fill the pages with, uh, sorry, the, the the magazine with uh, great articles. Mm. And and the other issue you're getting, there's two other features I really like. One is you have the old adverts scattered throughout, like Easter eggs kind of thing for the oils or the 1970s triumph for what it was amongst the modern stuff which is really fun to seek those out and also you have real life owners talking about their um experiences good and bad telling the stories with the cars and, and what drives yeah them kind well of the, the the period adverts is a is a really interesting one because i i run a picture library called magic car picks and it's been going for about 14 years now and, and Magic Carpix is effectively a cooperative between me and some photographer friends in the industry. And initially, um, we, we, it started out as a uh, as a picture library. And, um, well, it still is a picture library, that's what it is. But it started out as, as a collection of uh, photo shoots that would be available very cheaply to book publishers, magazine publishers, people who needed decent pictures and didn't have much money. So um, I set it up. And, and I brought in a few photographer friends in the industry. And we put up some pictures and it took off and, and we've now got a lot more than that. We've got a lot of period imagery brochures and right. period press shots and um, adverts and all that kind of stuff. So that quarter of a million pictures up there and it's, it's constantly growing. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a sideline for me, um, but it's a great resource for classic retro modern because there's thousands of adverts out there uh, on there sorry and um it's it's uh, roy the designer can just go into magic carpets and just just pick some adverts and he's very good at at, at picking adverts that complement the editorial so when we well before we launched um i said we really need to uh, go large on the nostalgia if we can Uh, many years ago uh well, back in the 90s, I did a placement with Practical Classics, which, which is what led to them offering me a job. And uh, way back then, there was a, a magazine called Popular Classics. And Popular Classics 
was a, a classic car magazine that went heavy on the nostalgia in terms of using a lot of period imagery, a lot of imagery from the 50s and 60s, right. maybe the 70s. And, and at that point, popular classics have been closed down and absorbed into practical classics. And practical classics chose not to go down the route of, of period imagery. And there's, they had a bit of criticism for that because people were saying, we want that period imagery. And for some reason, practical classics said, well, no, we don't want to do that. So there was no way of accessing that, that imagery. And even though it's now a quarter of a century on, when we launched, I said, I think that we should use the period imagery that's available to us as much as we can because nobody else is doing that and and we were keen to embrace that but we we assumed that people wouldn't really notice it they would see it as maybe just a little bit of an add-on to what we do and we've uh, we've literally been overwhelmed swamped by people saying we love the period imagery mm. um it, it's it's a core part and a key part of what you do please don't lose it when you've got more paid advertising don't lose the period imagery and people think that it's there as a filler they think it's because we haven't got a lot of paid advertising we're just filling the space with old adverts but it's actually a core part of of our editorial proposition and we'll always find the space for it because we've got so much available um and i think uh, sorry i just think you've it's sort of a real zeitgeist thing at the moment with the pandemic and uncertainty about futures people tend to go back to sort of nostalgic times or go back to things they remember and that it's amazing how period ever because oh i can remember looking at that with my dad or something and it's it's just well good. The, the four things that since we launched so we launched on the first of july and issue six goes to press tomorrow um so you know that's gone very quickly but we we still get co- a constant stream of people saying how much they love what we're doing and the four things they particularly like are the design, the variety of the cars, uh, the, the the period adverts, and the quality of the paper. Um, because the cost cutting within the publishing industry means that a lot of the magazines are printed on very very thin paper, and we, right. we try to do something a bit bit higher quality. Right. Despite the fact we don't charge, we charge five quid, which is uh, no more than uh, anyone else is charging, and, and less than quite a few. But um, and that's the period advert. But the other thing that you said um, is about people with their cars so we we run uh, a your classics section at the front of the magazine and we have a section a bit later on or a, an article later on called living with and it's living with so the next issue is living with a, a bmw m3 and e46 mm. um we had a guy with a volvo 480 uh we've got a guy with a, had a guy with a saab um it's really easy to think of uh car magazines as being full of cars and you said earlier on about um you know how do you get across to the reader about gear changes and steering and brakes and those kinds of things um and actually people aren't so interested in reading about how a car drives necessarily they're interested in the, the stories of the people people and their cars and there are some really interesting stories out there long-term ownerships horrendous restorations or difficult mm. restorations uh you know road trips um people who sold a car and then bought it back uh, people who've bought a car because they grew up with one very similar and then they've tried to track one down yeah. much later in their life people who aspired to owning something when they passed their driving test they couldn't afford it and years later they can now afford it so they've gone out and bought one things like Cosworth Sierras is the obvious example <laughs> um and uh you know BMW M3s and Ferraris so you know 
cars are about people as much as cars um and we try to tell some of those stories and uh it's it's a shame that um a lot of magazines focus too much on the cars and not enough on the people and we're trying to redress the balance yeah and i think i think that's that as you say that's probably a huge part of the appeal and, and why you're doing well and how well how well are you doing are you hitting your subscriber targets or uh well we never <laughs> set out with targets um we're 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 not we're not target driven we didn't have targets but i mean we're doing um i think we're at about four thousand print copies per issue uh, which has been fairly steady uh we so um issue six goes to press tomorrow issue five is the current issue we, I don't think we've had the sales figures for issue four yet. There's there's quite a delay. So we're available in, in new 2000 news agents in the UK. Uh, and then obviously we're posting copies out to people through subscriptions. And uh, so we we don't get the sales figures from the news agents until about two months after it's gone off sale. So we've only got for the first three uh, figures the first three issues. And it seems to be fairly steady, right. like 4,000 or so. But the signs are that the current issue, we're starting to see a significant increase in sales um, uh, in the news agent. I think we're also seeing a, an increase in, in mail outs. But I leave Ian, the publisher, to look after all of that, and I focus on getting the pages filled. <laughs> so at this stage, you know, it's, it's early days, and I don't yeah. worry too much about yeah. where we're going as long as we're solvent, which we are. You know, That's um, good. We've got ad revenue. We've got uh, income from copy sales. And, um, you know, we, we, we're constantly being told how wonderful we are. So for now, we'll take that um, and, and we'll see how quickly we can right. grow. So if people in New Zealand want to buy classic retro modern, they can uh, do it through subscription or they can do it digital version or how? how... Yeah. So uh, classicretromodern.com is our website. We're on all the socials. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Um, uh, but the, the, if you go to classicretromodern.com, you'll see a little bit of editorial content. You'll see stuff about subscriptions, both print and digital. Uh, we do packages, so you can buy one copy. You can go up to a three-year subscription. Um, that's print. I'm not sure about the digital offering in terms of uh, how many copies and in inverted commas you have to buy. Um, uh, I should have researched that before I came on, but hey, I'm rubbish. Um, that's quite all right. But, what what I do know is that people prefer print still. We, we people are buying digital uh, copies of the mag, but you know the numbers are still quite small at the moment. It's the print that people want, and they still want to hold something, turn the pages, yep. um, and uh, you know that's 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 where it's at for us. Yeah, and when you say things like uh, that, just the paper quality, it's good. It's something. You know, that's that's just something you leave around, and other members of the family can pick it up and read it because it's got people stories and it's all good quality stuff. And yeah, it's it's really it's, it's pretty, uh, an interesting exercise because I've never worked in publishing as such. I've I've uh, contributed to a lot of magazines over the years, but I've not run one. Not not a not a newsstand one. I've run one, but I've run club mags and controlled circulation mags. But this is the first time I've edited a. Uh, one available in the news agent. So you have to get the front cover imagery right. You have to get the mixture of content right. <laughs> um, so we do two covers, which a lot of people don't realise because yes. they see one or the other. We, yes. we do a cover for the newsstand and we do a cover for subscribers. And they have different images on and um, 
the newsstand cover is quite busy because it has to tell you what's inside the magazine. So there's lots of stuff on there about what's inside the mag, whereas the subscriber cover is a much cleaner design with a different image. And we are finding now that people are buying both. They're going into the newsagent to buy the one cover because you automatically get sent the subscriber cover from us, even if you're only buying one issue, because that's all that we mail out. And now that people have discovered there's two covers, they're going out and buying both covers because they want to have both. They're seeing what we do is special enough to keep the magazine, you know. So they're not they're not Whoa. binning the magazine, they're keeping it as something to treasure. Well. And I like I like the numbers on it as well, the big numbers. Something about those big numbers. Issue five out now. Big numbers. Well, um it's always an interesting yardstick of how good you are when you look on eBay and you see if people are buying back issues of your magazine we sold out of issue one as issue two came out we sold out of issue three but we've still got some copies of issues two and four i think um and uh some of the some first editions had sold for about 60 quid on ebay and <laughs> um You've, and, you've... and what's really crazy is that the cover price has, has always been five pounds and even when the first issue was current and you could buy it direct from us for five pounds. There was a guy in Scotland who had bought, I think, 10 or 12 copies, and he was selling them at 10 pounds a copy plus postage. And we were doing this for five quid delivered to your door. And people were still, he, he sold out. People were still buying them from him. You are a collector's so, item, even, even though you have barely started. Well, it was still current, and people were thinking this is a collector's item. So, yeah, it, it's interesting how people have got caught up in it. And the thing is, what's really important about Classic Retro Modern is it isn't just a magazine to read. We're building a community of enthusiasts yeah. where anything goes. And while we focus on the more affordable cars, and that's really where, where our niche is, we're, we're at the more, more affordable end of the market in terms of what we cover, but we're doing it to a high standard. In the magazine market, the really high quality magazines tend to focus on cars that are out of reach mm -hmm. and the cars that are affordable tend to be covered by magazines that are put together quite cheaply so we're trying to do something that is high quality but you can still afford to buy the cars that are covered um and and that struck a chord with people because they like the quality of the magazine but they can afford most of what's in it yeah actually especially a proton impian oh um, that's gavin's dream car and, uh, yes. and he's on the lookout for one yeah, okay. Well, I'm not sure we have any of those in New Zealand. I'm not sure they ever made it over here at all. But, um, yeah, if I see one, I'll let him know. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure he won't mind uh, uh, putting it on a ship and, and bringing it out to the UK. Putting it on a ship, right. We have unbelievably got four minutes left. Uh, so your voice has held up fantastic. So thank you very much for that and I was going to ask you all about your road safety website we've run out of time for that so we're going to have to do that um, I'm going to have to do a part two sometime maybe I'll let you go in the summertime and get up an hour earlier or two um, <laughs> for that it's but, amazing how quickly it goes yeah uh, so so uh, yes so we'll just read that people can buy classic retro modern you can do it from the website subscribe to the magazine uh, or get the digital um, version but uh, it's a real a real interesting well, magazine. Well class, classic retro modern has everything you need to know There's, it's very easy to navigate all of your options are there 
Um, and if you if you go to classicretromodern.com, everything's spelled out for you. You can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. And if you do go wrong, you can get in touch with us, and we're very nice, and we'll we'll reply and uh, give you what you need to know. Can't go wrong. That's great. Okay. So, um, yes, as we come to the last uh, couple of minutes then, so you presumably got another edit. Your editorial responsibilities never kind of finish. It's just one day to the next, bang, bang, bang. Yeah, well, we're a monthly magazine, and there's a lot of content in the mag uh, in each issue, so um, it's pretty full on there. But also, as an example, I was at the big classic car show at the NEC over the weekend, so Birmingham's National Exhibition Centre is a, a huge uh, expo space there's a big classic car event twice a year we were there last week the weekend just gone and i interviewed quite a few owners about their cars for our youtube channel so those will be going up in the next few days so i'm doing some youtube stuff um obviously gavin gavin's doing social media constantly uh, we're out doing photo shoots interviews um you know yesterday we were we were preparing the magazine to go to press or going through checking for typos and making sure we've made the right picture selections and all those kinds of things. So yeah, it's, it's pretty full on. There's always something to do. And then, you know, I've also got other, uh, other people to, 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 to do articles for, to keep that uh, variety um, uh, in my working life. It's pretty full on, but it's, it's all good fun. And do you get time to drive? I get time to drive, I get time to cycle. I love cycling, keeps me fit. So I'll be out on the bike, hopefully this afternoon for for an hour. Um, I do driving, so I've got a couple of 90s Mercedes, uh, my SL, I've got a W124, an E320 convertible. I've got my Triumph Vitesse. So I spend time with my car club friends. Um, over the winter, not so much, um, but uh, certainly kind of spring through to autumn, try and use those as much as I can. Um, uh, but then I have a have a new car that I, I keep on long term test for a magazine, uh, which is a Cupra Formentor, uh, which is on the long term test. That's a, a six month loan. It's a plug in hybrid, and that gives me experience of of, of, a, of a brand new car. Um, so uh, yeah, modern, classics, new, used, bit of everything. It's all in the mix. All keeps right. it varied and interesting. No, that sounds that does sound interesting. Indeed. And Richard, thank you so much for uh, all your time and input into the show, I was going to say tonight, but for you this morning, thank you again for getting up so early. Hope well, the sun has now come up. The it's, sun has now come up. It's 8 o'clock and I can see what the weather's doing and it's blue skies and it's lovely out there, although it's only 8 degrees, so I don't think I'll be uh, going out in T-shirt and shorts today. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll let you go and get some coffee or tea to help you wake up. Uh, thank you again for all your input and it was great to hear you thanks again richard okay thanks, for thanks very show. much thanks to new zealand on air for making this podcast available by funding the access media project other great podcasts from fresh fm are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net